Hey folks, in this episode, you'll hear something about the mysterious origins of corn, that its wild ancestor is unknown. Well, since we put out the episode, a listener has let us know that while the ancestral origin of corn was once considered a great biological mystery, in recent years, scientists have made great strides understanding how, where, and when corn was domesticated. And the wild ancestor of corn is known. It is a Mexican variety of grass called Tio Sinti. It's a really interesting story and totally worth a Google image search. And we will put some links on our website in case you want to learn more. Okay, enjoy. I'm ready to chit-chat. Chit-chat. Can you currently hear my dogs barking? They just barked. You're listening to Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Justine Paradise, here with Teada Quimby. And Erica Janik. Uh, Sam Evans-Brown is gone right now on paternity <laughs> leave. I should mention that uh, Sam, uh, who we're all uh, very happy for, he's got a, a new baby, and um, he has asked the people of Twitter who follow him to chastise him whenever he's tweeting so that uh, he can actually take a break from work and technology and social media. So uh, I encourage you listeners... Uh, to follow him on Twitter and gently troll him if you see him tweeting. Gently. So. That's like the top announcement. Yeah. Is, is gently chastise Sam. We're doing the same at work. Anytime he tries to work, too, we're also like, go away, Sam. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so so onto the, the business at hand. Um, a little while back, we put out an episode called Fruit Fight. We have to consider this. Peppers are glorious. Do you have to consider that? I don't know if I have to consider You that. do have to consider it. They're glorious. <laughs> Uh, to help me with this part of my argument, I want you to meet three times. And this was a competition that was essentially like, who can make the best case for their fruit? And by that, by case, it's just like, who can tell the strongest story? Um, and obviously the answer was was me. Um, <laughs> the coconut one. I suppose you, I guess you won with the coconut. You know. Um, uh, right. The coconut one. And, and, but we had, we had all had pretty good cases, I think. But one thing that we touched on... Um, not sort of explicitly, like we didn't say it exactly as is, is how tightly food and human history are intertwined, particularly when it comes to uh, the history of colonialism. So in a little bit, we're going to talk more about that idea with a couple of really awesome food writers. But first... Right. Listeners have been sending in their own pitches, um, which has been really cool. Mm. They are very impressive. It's true. People like reported. Yeah. You know. So we thought, um, you know, given that uh, you out there had put so much work into these, you really deserve to share the spotlight a bit. Um, so I gave these the same sort of mixing treatment I did for the rest of the group. I put a little bit of music. I put a couple silly clips in some of them. Um, and we're <laughs> going to play them now. So Awesome. Let's start with this one. Hi, Sam. This is Lauren calling from Intervale, New Hampshire, with my pick for the greatest fruit of all time. And quite frankly, I am shocked that no one already argued for corn. Now, the first reason that corn is the greatest fruit of all time goes back about 10,000 years with a mystery. You probably already know that corn or maize was integral in the peopling of the Americas. But what you may not know is that the biological origins of maize are still a mystery to modern biologists. There's no obvious wild ancestor of the corn plant. And in fact, it's something of a miracle that this plant was even domesticated in the first place, a process that probably took hundreds or even thousands of years to complete. 
The second reason that corn is in fact the greatest is because its products and byproducts are used in so many different things that we touch every day. I don't just mean biofuels, although ethanol is clearly a very important biofuel, but it's also used in construction materials and adhesives. In fact, corn byproducts are used in things like batteries, paints, wallpapers, soaps, dyes, even pharmaceuticals, just a huge number of goods that we interact with on a daily basis. But the most obvious and final reason that corn is in fact the greatest fruit of all time is because we just eat so stinking much of it. I don't just mean corn on the cob. For better or worse, corn amounts for a huge percentage of the modern American diet. Some estimates put it around 70%. And by that I mean corn flour, high fructose corn syrup, corn starch. In fact, corn products are used as sweeteners, texturizers, and emulsifiers in such a large share of the grocery store, even in things like peanut butter and chewing gum. Tall up with the tall corn taste of Kellogg's Golden Flakes. And sorry, Sam, corn products are even used in vanilla extract. Not only that, but the things that we eat also eat corn. The cows, the pigs, the chickens, even fish are fed a diet of corn products. Actually, livestock feed accounts for more than one-third of total U.S. corn production. And then, once you have that chicken nugget, there's a very good chance that it was fried in, yes, you guessed it, corn oil. And the percentage of our diet that's made up of corn and corn byproducts is only going up. In fact, the USDA estimated that per capita availability of corn products more than doubled between 1988 and 2018. So I chose corn as the greatest fruit of all time for its outsized place in the things that we eat, that we use, and in cultural heritage. Plus, who doesn't love a good mysterious origin story? So it might not be the healthiest, and it certainly isn't the most glamorous, but it is the most prominent. And that's why I think corn is, in fact, the greatest. Thanks. Keep plenty of Kellogg's corn flakes on hand, kids, and you'll never get caught short. I'm sold. Corn's the winner. I will say right now, too, is like corn on the cob, primo season. Also, corn tortillas are objectively superior to wheat tortillas. Preach! I will say that I think this argument kind of takes the tack of, um, you know, corn is everywhere and and really, really useful. And therefore, th- those are the reasons that it's, you know, number one. But I would, another word for everywhere is pervasive, right? Mm. I, I would sort of characterize um, that as not awesome. Like the fact that it's in corn is the, the basis of so much livestock feed and um, corn syrup is in so many processed foods is you know, the stuff of many a book about like our agriculture system by Michael Pollan. Right. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I mean, I think it's a, a legitimate debate tactic to take and, um, and and sort of a bold one at that. I think she said something about like, you know, healthy or not. Um, she said that for better or for worse or something. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, my guess is that she would acknowledge like, like high fructose corn syrup is probably not good for society. I, I did see an interesting uh, piece. I think it was with New Scientist or Scientific American, whatever. We'll link to it. Um but it, but it was an interesting piece that sort of said, listen, you've got to divide between corn the crop and corn the system because corn the crop is amazing, but corn the system is complicated in, in a lot of ways, like deleterious for society and monocultures and health. Um, and right. and so it was sort of, you know, arguing for a new corn paradigm that, that may reduce <laughs> at least the, the sort of power of numbers in her argument. But I think 
you know, either way, um, as, a, as a straight debate tactic, uh, well done. Sure. Um, I mean, I do appreciate, um, like, I'm reading right now this book about, you know, Native history of New England and King Philip's War um, in the 1600s. And just thinking about the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash, or mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, how important that was at that time and how those... Um, those plantings were managed, um, at least in New England at that time, by cooperative groups of women. Um, so I thought about that when she talked about, you know, the peopling of the Americas. I was thinking about Native people and the Three Sisters. Yeah. Which is cool use of corn. Thanks, Lauren, for that. That was really awesome. I'm amazed that you spent that much time on this <laughs> and sent it in. It is so cool. So this one, um, we mentioned when we announced the winner on the update. Um, so you may have heard sort of the the bullet points. Um, this time around, we're going to play the pitch in its near entirety. Uh, but But here it is. Recently, the crew from Outside In sought to determine the best fruit and presented the audience with four contestants, the pepper, the coconut, the vanilla bean, and the Excuse me, the the gourd. If we're searching for the best fruit, shouldn't it be at home in a fruit basket or a fruit salad? Shouldn't its fruitiness be at the core of its historic and cultural importance? I'd like to present a write-in candidate and urge the outside-in audience to join me in acclaiming it the best fruit. This is a fruit that helped build our civilization, that is an important part of our economy, and that has been a mainstay of cultures around the world for thousands of years. I propose that the best fruit is the grape. We don't know when people first made the grape part of their diets because it happened before written history began. The first evidence of fermenting grapes into wine comes from China, sometime between 7,000 and 6,600 BCE. That's at least 9,000 years of winemaking history. The earliest known cultivation of wild vines into domestic grapes was in 6,000 BCE. Grapes lend themselves to fermentation because natural yeasts cling to their skins and start breaking down the fruit's sugar into alcohol. This is a miraculous symbiosis across species from three separate kingdoms to produce one of the staples of human civilization, wine. The real benefit to humans is that the yeasts defend their turf, driving out other microbes that could cause illness. The result is a delicious and quite literally intoxicating beverage that is safer to drink than water and that doesn't spoil. We got the wine. Aren't we lucky? We got wine. Whoopee whoa! Imagine if we didn't bring the wine. We'd be shunned by society. Outcasts! Where's your wine? When water supplies can't be found or trusted, wine became people's main source of hydration. Even when wine goes bad, it turns into vinegar which can also be used to preserve other foods, helping ward off starvation in the lean times. Grapes and the wines they produce are present in Homer's Odyssey. In the Old Testament, grapes are mentioned dozens of times, including in Genesis. And in the wine were three branches, and it was as though it budded, and her bosom shot forth, and the clusters thereof brought forth ripe grapes. In the New Testament, Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana. It's wine. No, no, it's water. I put it there myself. It's wine. It's water. Go over there and make sure. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father the wine dresser. Communion wine becomes the blood of Christ. The Koran lists the grape as one of the fruits of paradise. The grape still packs a huge cultural punch today. Marvin Gaye hit number one with I Heard It Through the Grapevine in 1969. And a group of claymation raisins used the tune in one of the most successful marketing campaigns of the 1980s. It's a 
Comic Gary Gullman praises the greatness of the grape in his stand-up routine. I love him. And, and can I tell you something? Grapes hmm, bring out the best in people. Ever have somebody not share their grapes? Can I have some grapes? Of course you can have some grapes. Look how many there are. Pick some off you. We grow more grapes by weight than any other fruit. 72 million tons annually, according to the University of Missouri. That yields 7.2 trillion gallons of wine each year. Trillion and 800,000 tons of raisins. Just 12% of grapes produced end up as, well, you know, grapes. But that's still enough for the average American to consume 8 pounds of fresh grapes every year. A 2017 economic study commissioned by Wine America found that 13 million tourists visited American wineries more than 43 million times per year. American wine drinkers spend more than $17.6 billion a year, supporting nearly 1 million jobs. Historically, culturally, economically, grapes are huge. Tourists aren't touring the vanilla vineyards of Madagascar. Aesop didn't write a fable about sour peppers. And high school students aren't reading The Coconuts of Wrath. Grapes enabled us to build a civilization. They saved us from starvation. They protected us from plague. They contributed to cultures around the world for millennia. If you're seeking the truth about what is the best fruit, in vino veritas. The best fruit is the humble, the historic, the versatile, the great grape. I do love a grape. The grape is incredible. I, right now I'm, I'm staying at, um, at a house with Concord grapes uh, growing over the arbor. Mm. And they're so good. Like, I, you forget that, like... Um, just like how how powerfully flavorful like a sort of semi wild grape is. Yeah. I think they've kind of been like ruined by all of the like grape flavored things that don't really taste right like grape. Even though that used to be my absolute that artificial purple f- flavor <laughs> used to be my favorite oh, yeah. flavor. When I was a kid, white grape juice was my favorite. And at some point, I got old enough to realize just because it's literally the sweetest like <laughs> substance on earth. It's just sugar um, water. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thank you, Grant, for uh, sending in the grape pitch. Are you guys ready for the last one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, let's hear it. Hello, Outside In Team. My name is Hallie Casey. I am the host of the One to Grow On podcast, and I would like to defend rice as the best fruit. So in the update episode, you mentioned rice as a possible contender for greatest fruit of all time. But the first question was, is rice a fruit? So rice itself, the plant, is a grass, so it's related to things like wheat and corn. The bit that we actually eat is what's called a cereal grain, which is botanically called a caryopsis. A caryopsis is developed from the ovary of a flower. The botanical definition of a caryopsis is a dry, one-seeded fruit in which the ovary wall is united with a seed coat, typical of grasses and cereals. So, yes. Weird as it may seem, rice is a fruit. But if we're going to be arguing for grain to be a fruit, why is rice the best fruit? Why wouldn't it be corn or wheat? Well, to get this answer, I called a rice guy. Uh, Bruce Lindquist, uh, UC Rice Specialist. Been working with rice almost 25 years. I originally met Bruce when I was getting my master's degree at UC Davis, and of course I thought of him when I was thinking about rice for the greatest fruit of all time. And so I posed that question to him. 
what makes rice different than other grains? It provides more food calories than I believe than any other crop, especially to poor people. Rice is tremendously variable in the shape of the rice and the texture of the rice and the stickiness of rice. Um, there's all kinds of differences in the aroma of rice uh, that has very important cultural significances depending on where you are. You know, you go to a marketplace and you'll see all kinds of different kinds of rice that has very different properties in terms of your perception when you eat it, the the palate, how you taste it and smell it and consume it. So you don't see that with wheat and corn. About 70% of corn ends up as animal feed. And I think maybe close to 50%, I don't know about that number, of wheat doesn't end up in the human food supply chain. But even what humans eat of corn and wheat is usually ground up. So there's much less of a importance on quality and what that original grain was like. But for rice, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly important quality. Bruce went on to talk about how this can be extremely frustrating for rice breeders because the preferences for characteristics of rice are so culturally specific from town to town or region to region. He and I were actually talking about a guest lecture that he gave when I was at school. In there, I gave a thing, you know, we're trying to improve yields and, and stuff. And, and, and one farmer, he, he liked the yield of a certain variety. So he grew a lot of it, but without ever tasting it. And then he ended up getting enough to eat and he didn't like it. <laughs> so he spent all this time growing a, a, a bunch of rice that they didn't like. So it's not just about getting a lot of rice. Certain quality aspects for different cultures are tremendously important. I think that the real difference with rice is that it is so varied. It is so different. It is so specific and it can be so many different things. Of course, like we have corn tortillas and corn on the cob. But when you think about all of the different shapes that rice takes and the importance of the dishes that are made with rice throughout the world, it's just different. By country, China consumes the most rice, followed by India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Vietnam, and then other Asian countries are in the top 10. But, of course, rice is also very important in Latin American cuisines, in Middle Eastern cuisines, West African cuisines, the cuisines of the American Deep South and the Caribbean. In finishing up my interview with Bruce, I asked him if anything from his work stood out as an example of the importance of rice. Well, in Laos where I worked for eight years, the general word for food in the Lao language is rice. So when you say you're going to eat, to say that in Lao is you're, you're biting cow, which is you're going to eat rice. So just the general term for food or going to eat is rice. So rice is just totally a part of food. So that's my argument. Rice is food. The whole grain properties of rice, the different varieties, the ways that we appreciate it are like no other grain that we eat. It's culturally significant. It's nutritionally significant. And yes, it is 
the best fruit. Thank you guys for all that you do. I hope you enjoyed my rice rant. Mm. That was good. Yeah. Rice is food. I will say, I think she misrepresented a little bit like, you know, corn is corn on the cob and corn tortillas. Corn has a lot of diversity also, Um, but that's okay. Um, (laughs) You know, you you have to sort of like shoot down other people's arguments a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Well, she didn't even know she was going heads up against corn. And, and, um, and, you know, so that was, uh, that was, I guess, fortuitous for her argument. But it's interesting because I think like to me, one of the things that this spells out is that the, 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 very idea of the contest, which by design was so broad as to be interpretable however you want it to be, um, that like some, you know, some folks are obviously thinking of the best as um, sort of like the fruit that is produced the most and is has the most utility. I think that is like one valid interpretation because the rules never said what best means. That's why I liked the the papa. I wish whoever submitted the papa might have been on Twitter um, said, I mentioned last time, but said, you know, part of the reason that the papa is so amazing is that it could not be industrialized. It could not be commercialized and spread across the world. So it sort of is necessarily local. Right. Which is another completely valid way to say, like, what is the best yeah. fruit is that it resists industrialization right, right. versus, you know, a lot of these that are have proven to be, you know, these incredible industrialized, you know, crops. Right. Although, although all of them have their examples of, of, you know versions of them that are like indigenous to a place or yes. um yeah. even the banana like um the the one that gets sold the cavendish banana yep cavendish yeah is the one that um could be shipped basically but there are lots of unique varieties that have incredibly different flavor profiles um that are you know hugely at risk because of the banana industry but <laughs> i think that, yeah. yeah i think that's true of like apples too the ones that you see in the grocery store are mm. the ones that can last the longest in the grocery store. They're not there because they taste mm. great. Right. Let's take a break and um, and then uh, we'll come back and have a conversation about some of these sort of deeper themes behind this whole exercise that that um, have kind of come out. Okay. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Taylor Crimby here with Justine Paradise. Erica Janik went to a meeting. <laughs> in the break. As she is wont to do as executive producer. Got to do what you got to do. Uh, so I mentioned earlier. That after we initially presented our cases for the fruit fight episode, I was I was like really struck. Um, I mean, I, I guess I wasn't super surprised, but I was struck at how often colonialism played a role in the fruits that we selected. We've argued about how how appropriate it is that you're struck by this. <laughs> I think about it this way, which is like I frequently have conversations with my son that are like, "What's your favorite fruit?" And it's all about taste. So so the 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 exercise starts off in like what I think of as kind of a juvenile way. But then you get into the, you know, the the like culture and history and context around these things. And it's more complicated. So so my my example, the pepper, um, you know, one of the things I talked about, I was like, wow, it's prolific and diverse and it's and it's spread across the world. It's infiltrated cuisines. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about the coconut. Yeah. I mean, as a sort of tool um to help people migrate across Polynesia. But also the reason that we have so much information about the coconut is because the French has a huge library of coconuts because they were in the in Polynesia having collected the coconuts to try to create one that could be industrialized. So it's yeah. a massive cash crop now. Um, the coconut library sounds like the weirdest library you could ever go to. It might not be actually a, a library. I could be misnaming it. But essentially there's a, there's a huge stockpile of coconuts that have been collected over, um, you know, from the French presence across the Pacific Basin. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And uh, Sam's case was vanilla, which is um, his case was, you know, vanilla is precious. It's luxurious, partly because the pollination method is uh, so intricate. But actually, that pollination method, I'm, I'm not actually sure Sam mentioned this in the piece, but it was invented by an enslaved child um, on the island of Réunion, which is off of Madagascar. Hmm. Um, that child's name was Edmund Albius. And then, I, I, and then Felix's um, Fruit the Gourd, which was sort of the most overtly connected to a sort of rebellion against colonialism, which was awesome. Um, you know, talked about it being connected to music and tools that were used as a part of a resistance by enslaved people. Yeah, I- I guess, I mean, what this communicates, I, I think it's kind of um, obvious in in the even exercise, the fact that the food crop reaches us at the end of like thousands of years, this process of domestication, which is just this incredible, like it's almost necessarily a collaboration between um, human beings and the natural world as if well, as if there's a distinction between those two things. But, you know, it's, it's this collaboration between a plant or an animal and a human. Um, right. And then, and then it's of course necessarily tied to the kind of like history of power and and money um, in the world. So we ended up reaching out to two people that have written about this connection and thought about this a lot. Uh, Alicia Kennedy, who writes a really incredible newsletter that you just introduced me to. Yeah, it's just called "From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy." And we also reached out to Coral Lee, who is a food writer for Food Fifty Two, and wrote like a real a really fascinating article that we can link to. Yeah, um, she wrote this series called "The ABCs of Good Food," and like A is for access, um, and and C was for colonialism. So we got them on the line, and you uh, sort of started with this question of of is this or is this not obvious? Right, right. And I, I should say that um, the first voice you'll hear is Alicia Kennedy. And just FYI, her dog was in and out of the room while she was on the call. So you might hear it. Yeah. My question is, does it surprise either of you as journalists who report and write about food that the story of all of our fruits um, had had an episode of colonialism involved in their story? Most foods that we eat or and especially fruits have ties to colonialism, especially because much of the fruit that we think of even in the global north as, you know, widely accessible there every time you go to the supermarket, like a banana or or a coconut or even now nowadays, maybe a mango or an avocado you know, you think of them as always being there and always being available at the supermarket and always being pretty cheap. And that in itself is a result of colonialism in terms of the way these things were traded and and the way these things were um, forced to become, you know, big agricultural crops, you know, beyond the the natural uh, state that they would usually take in terms of their growing. And so, yeah, it's very difficult to eat fruit, especially without thinking of colonialism, but it, it's also difficult to drink a cup of coffee without thinking of colonialism or eat a bar of chocolate. Yeah, and I, one thing I want to turn to is um, why certain foods are seen as valuable and others as less valuable, um, you know, both like in a supermarket or in restaurants. Um, you know, what we found in our um, sort of cases is that one some foods we were arguing, you know, they're they're everywhere, they're used by everyone, and that's why that the this is important and the the other argument was well they're so precious and and special and that's that's why they're important um and alicia you wrote in a newsletter on this idea uh, called on luxury um 
that you said food is a human right. Food is also luxury and pleasure. These aren't mutually exclusive ideas and they're not mutually exclusive pursuits. Um, so yeah, I just, I want to know what you're trying to communicate in that piece. Like what makes a food a luxury food or, or not? Well, I think what makes something a luxury is very subjective. And so, but also it is, it is culturally decided. Um, and so in that piece, I was writing a lot of, I was seeing so many people eating heirloom tomatoes and, you know, really reveling in tomato season during the summer. But these aren't, you know, those people who are reveling in the deliciousness of a really seasonal ripe tomato might not be con really considering what meat they're buying or what chocolate they're buying. And so I do think that you can reframe luxury to be about you know, the reveling in the deliciousness of the seasonal, the well-sourced, reframing luxury to mean all of these things. Coral, I don't know if you have anything to add about um, on, on that topic, actually. Yeah, yeah. When I, um, when you first asked that question, I actually kind of wanted to push back and even ask um, luxury to who or who, you know, is defining um, these foods to be luxurious. I feel like foods we think to be luxurious, like you said, heirloom tomatoes or like um, chanterelle mushrooms and um, truffles, like these have been decided to be luxurious by a certain person or a certain class of people. And so um, so often when we are engaging with these luxurious foods, it's not even foods that are particularly rich or really great tasting to ourselves, but um, things that we would like ourselves to, to have to also believe to be luxurious. So as Alicia said, I do think it is subjective. There's something connected, I think, that, that uh that I think Alicia, you wrote about, um, that, that we identify sort of certain foods or certain products from being of a place or like more connected with right. the natural world and you know french truffles being a very good example or um uh you know certain wines from certain regions of france or italy whereas then you've got something like sugar which a lot of people will just think of as this raw commodity that exists outside of place and time no sugar cane you know has terroir but it's something the same as wine would the same as various grapes that we hold in such high esteem and you know there's there are heirloom sugar canes mm. in various um, tropical or subtropical regions where sugar cane grows. And, you know, those taste different. It's not understood in the same way that wine is. And it could be the same way you can have vanilla from Tahiti or from Madagascar. Um, you could have sugar from Puerto Rico or sugar from the Dominican Republic or sugar from uh, Ecuador or Brazil that tastes different from each other. And we understand that it tastes different and we might use it in different ways. Um, but that's all, you know, been, you know, kind of washed away from our understanding of these things. And in Puerto Rico specifically, which is still a colony um, of the United States, the whole sugar agriculture was destroyed in the mid 20th century by the United States, which decided that the island should use its resources for other things like pharmaceuticals in particular and now you can drive around the island and there's abandoned sugar mills everywhere mm. so there is a little bit of a movement to reharvest that but at the same time you know it's still going to be such a battle to get people to understand sugar as something not just you know the domino bag mm. of white sugar but you know something that could be a lot more rich and flavorful and reflecting of reflective of place we mentioned earlier that coral's the author of a series on food 52 called the abcs of good food 
And one of the reasons we reached out to her was the article for C. C is for colonialism's effect on how and what we eat. Right. And one of the things that I was really interested in was how Coral explored the idea of quote unquote authentic food. Um, And she wrote, authenticity is not black or white, but an ever evolving shade of gray. And she specifically pointed to baba tea and bude jjigae, which is Korean army stew. So boba, um, actually, um, the only way that milk get into tea is with the British colonization of um, Hong Kong. And so that's where we get milky tea. And then um, Taiwanese, a creative Taiwanese chef took the milky tea, added boba pearls to it, and that became, you know, the iconic drink. And so that is one, like you said, it's, it's very much considered authentic Taiwanese, but it is also born of colonialism. The other one, Korean army stew, I think is like not so much um, a, a fusion dish or a blending of two cultures, but it actually um, was born out of the presence of American military in Korea. Um, so there's a lot of processed meats in the stew. There's like hot dog spam, um, various hams, but that has become, you know, its own kind of Korean iconic dish. I guess at the risk of, of like sounding naive, I mean, I think all this stuff is so interesting. And yet when I'm in the kitchen cooking, um, which is something that I think that I've, I've sort of like blossomed in my 30s as somebody who likes to cook and, and like seeks to experiment more in the kitchen and like expand on the ingredients that I'm using and, um, you know, buying cookbooks and working my way through them. How do you connect like the experience of eating food to um, to these histories as you're doing it, whether this is advice or just like curious, you know, what's your experience like? Um, Alicia, do you want to start? Yeah, I when I'm eating, I'm not thinking about what happened to get the food to me necessarily. You know, I might be thinking, oh, this winemaker is fabulous. And, and I might be thinking that the farmer who farmed my tomato or my lettuce is wonderful, or the the you know that Dechecco, even though they make so much pasta, they still make great dry pasta. So I might be thinking those things, but for me, the the consciousness about my food origins comes into play when I'm deciding what to put in my kitchen, you know. And so when I'm using spices from burlap and barrel or from Diaspora Co. And they tell me on the label, you know, precisely which city these single origin spices came from, you know, for me. And I think that this is where people get tripped up because they're they're thinking too much about it. Not to accuse you of thinking too much. <laughs> no, that's that's totally fair, actually. <laughs> you know, you, you know, you don't have to think about, you know, that slavery brought you sugar when you're eating a piece of cake, you know, but you should think about it when you're buying sugar and let the, that reality figure into how you understand the cost of sugar and, you know, the process of sugar and and the significance and the preciousness and the luxury of sugar. And let that reflect in both the sugar you choose to buy and how you choose to use that sugar. If I could add one more thing to Alicia's list is also just shortening the, the kind of chain of events or distance the item has had to travel before it gets to you, whether it's going directly to the producer or um, or just being a little more clear on how that item is getting to you. I want to return to um, another question I had about luxury. Um, how does sort of like a, a people's food or a food that is like sort of really common and, and maybe cheap or like seen as, um you know, not like part of restaurant culture or something, then transform into something that's like 
very desirable um, or maybe it's on um, a restaurant's menu um, an expensive restaurant's menu like I'm thinking about an example of maybe quinoa um, or maybe even ramen like how does a how does a, a, a common food become kind of exalted right it's really interesting and it happens a lot in vegan cuisine or vegan food or vegan culture in terms of things especially like quinoa or you know, even tofu or even cauliflower, like people have turned cauliflower into all sorts of things now. Um, maybe the first, it's it's certainly not the first, but one of the most interesting examples of this is lobster um, and how lobster at one point was so ubiquitous that it was prison food for, for people who were in jail. And then it became something luxurious. Um, I This has been happening for a long time. And, I, you know, it's, it's the trouble with, capitalism and in, in people are going to keep deciding that something is cool and that's going to affect this the demand and the cost and that sort of thing um, in ways that are going to probably be detrimental to the people who had maybe previously depended on that food um, with quinoa we saw that in Bolivia it had been a staple food for indigenous um, working people and then it became too expensive for them to actually consume themselves. That demand from the global north that um, through colonialism made things like coffee, chocolate, bananas cheap, you know, these forces that we think of as have hang having happened long ago, they still they still affect how we eat and what we eat and the livelihoods of the people at the source and the people who are doing the farming and the and the picking. So, um, you know, it's never over. It just kind of reasserts itself in new ways, whether that's through restaurant chefs or Instagram popularity or um, that sort of thing. That was Alicia Kennedy, a food and drink writer based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Her newsletter is called From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy. And we also spoke with Coral Lee, an associate editor at Food 52. That is it for Outside In today. Today's episode was produced by Taylor Quimby and me, Justine Paradise, with help from our executive producer, Erica Janet. And thanks to our listeners, and I guess producers also on this episode, Grant Bossy, Lauren Baker, and Holly Casey. Maureen McMurray is the golden apple. What does that mean? Um, <laughs> it's like the golden apple figures in like lots of myths, traditional oh, myths. Okay, cool. You know. um, uh, we, we should also add that we asked Alicia and Coral what their fruit submissions would be if they were to make the case. Alicia threw out the passion fruit. Now I just get a bunch of passion fruit and slice them open and just suck out the guts. And Coral named the blackberry, which she informed us is actually an aggregate droop. <laughs> hmm. Who knew? Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And a reminder that we are a public radio show and we are in the process of reporting and producing some exciting and ambitious stories all that takes time and resources and so anything you can contribute to support the show we would be so grateful you can do that by heading to outsideinradio.org and clicking donate outside in is a production of new hampshire public radio drip 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 drip